Hello and welcome to this podcast, which accompanies the July 2009 edition of Le Monde Diplomatique. My name is George Miller, and my guest this month is Rajeshree Sisodia. Rajeshree has written an article on Burma in this month's issue, drawing on her visits to the country and to the refugee camps in neighbouring Thailand. In addition, she looks at Burma's position in the world order. It's a country rich in natural resources, yet politically falls into the category of failed state which nonetheless doesn't make it without interest to China. I began by asking Rajeshree to tell me about the Um Umphien refugee camp near Thailand's border with Burma. Uh, Um Umphien is one of nine temporary holding camps for Burmese refugees in Thailand, and it's home to about 20,000 Burmese people who are a mixture of different ethnic groups. You've got Chin, Mon, Burma, Karen, Karani, Kachi, and a few Rohingyas, and... From the time that I spent there, I, life is pretty hard. A lot of people to make ends meet work illegally, selling wood from uh, nearby forests and then selling it. Mm. Or they work as daily wage laborers on nearby farms. Uh, and selling wood is legal. I mean, the Thai government has a quite stringent rules about being able to cut forest and jungle area. But this is something they feel they need, they need to do just, just to earn money. There are a mixture of different people. You have people from farming communities, qualified professionals, teachers, activists. The parts of the camp that I went to didn't have any electricity. And in the summer months, you know, it's, it's really quite unpleasant being there. You know, day-to-day life, it's difficult. It's so sticky and so humid. And there were a few schools as well. And the people uh, relied on food rations of rice and oil from NGOs. Some of them were applying for UNHCR status as official refugees. And what expectations, what hopes do the people who find themselves there have? I mean, what what sort of prospects lie before them? It depends. I mean, there were, I did ask some of the people that I'd spoken to about whether they wanted to return to Burma or not, to Myanmar. Some said they didn't really want to go back, that they hoped to be able to carve out new lives in Thailand. And others said that in their heart of hearts, they wish that they could go back, but they can't, bearing in mind the current situation, that a lot of things in Burma would need to change. They said things like the conditions, the prerequisites that needed to be met for them to consider going back is obviously there need to be a change within the policy of the Burmese regime, the State Peace and Development Council, that political prisoners needed to be released and that there needed to be more unified international pressure. And also, quite importantly, and it's something that gets overlooked, is is that there is quite a strong human rights movement within Burma. Despite the fact that people do live with a sense of fear, there are people inside the country who are working hard to try and change the situation. And the people outside the country who had fled repression said that they hoped people in Burma would have the courage to continue to oppose the regime's policies. You paint quite a, a bleak picture, understandably, of the, the situation in Burma today. And I wondered if you could say something about it in the context of being a couple of years on from the, the Saffron Revolution and what, what, what the, the situation is there. Well, uh, firstly, George, I mean, I would like to say that one of the things that struck me the most about the people that I'd interviewed and spoken to when I was in Mace and in Pien is there's a remarkable resilience and a tenacity and a determination not to give up. If it doesn't happen now, if they have to wait another 20 years or, or, or longer, then they will do. So there is hope there. It's not that it's, 
the picture is completely dark and bleak. But within Burma, I think from 2007 and the Saffron Revolution, as it was called, things have deteriorated since then in the last two years. Speaking to people inside the country when I was there and then speaking to people in Thailand more recently in terms of the pressure that the Janta is applying on day-to-day life. More people are being sentenced to detention and you also are more likely to have your period of detention extended if, mm. you're, if you are already in custody. And as, as I mentioned in my article, there are neighborhood watch committees formed where you are effectively coerced and spying on your neighbors. And when I was in the country reporting that, I was warned by a couple of people, you know, or even if a person isn't pro-junta, they don't support the SPDC's policies, just to get an everyday thing done, you might need to gain the favor of a of a minor government official. So if you can score a, a, a point for yourself to get admission for your child into the school by telling them that, you know, look, this is a foreign journalist, mm-hmm. then they may do that just to get that everyday thing done. So there, and there is a climate of fear. There's a sense of paranoia there that, you know, they could end up being tried and sentenced to a long period in custody for being caught saying the wrong thing. But at the same time, I did find that people were hungry for knowledge about the outside world, wanted to know what was happening, and also wanted to speak about the, their lives, their everyday lives, you know, the good things about Burma and the bad things. And one thing that was said to me quite often was, our country is beautiful, we love our country, but our government isn't good. And as you said there, you discovered some amazing stories of resilience, people who had been activists for decades and had mm. suffered in, in increased maltreatment, arrest, torture, but yeah. remained, remained convinced that they, that they were pursuing a, a path that was, that was worthwhile. Yes, definitely. I mean, uh, one of the activists I spoke to, a man called Bo Chi, who was detained in 1988, and now runs an NGO in Mesot the, uh, that campaigns for political prisoners inside the country. One thing that he said to me struck me uh, when I asked him if he, you know, what kept him going and whether he was frightened at that time. And he said, you know, look, in 1988, I saw people I knew, new friends of mine who were killed in front of me. They were shot. Now I'm in Thailand now. And, you know, I, I always remember that and I can't give up. You know, mm. I have to continue. Mm. And I think that's semblance of the feeling that people inside the country have as well, that we, what's the alternative? I enjoyed your article because it, it not only shed light on those stories, but it also shed light on the macro-political questions. And you look at the Chinese and the Indian involvement in Burma. Can you say a little bit about what their interest in Burma is? There's little doubt that um, the biggest outside or external influence in the whole thing is China, you know, and has been for a number of years, economically, uh, militarily and politically. It all started, I think, early in the early 80s when the junta sort of relaxed its economic policy and then gradually, you know, legalized cross-border trade. And the international community, the West, the uh, United States, the EU, after the 1988 uprisings, when more than 3,000 people were killed for demonstrating against the uh, dictatorship and the state of the country's economy, the international community basically disavowed them after 1988, and China just stepped in, filling mm. in the void. Since then, China's presence inside Burma has grown. It's, uh, Burma is a country that is rich in oil 
but there's also natural gas, gems, teak, and hydropower, electricity from dams. That's also a growing industry. And China needs these things to fulfill its growing energy, energy needs, as does India. So yeah, they are vying to gain access to these resources. And to do that, they need to have an amiable relationship with the regime. But it's definitely China that at the moment is the favorite in terms of who the junta wants to deal with, not India. India is definitely a poor second. And it's in China's interest that the country shouldn't completely fall apart. I mean, their, their, their self-interest dictates a certain degree of stability, doesn't it? I mean, do you, think, do you think there's any prospect of beneficial change coming about while China holds that dominant influential position over Burma? Yes, I think definitely. I mean, much as um, maybe China doesn't want to see democracy in uh, Burma, I think also China, Beijing definitely doesn't want to see too much instability inside the country either for various reasons, mainly because, first of all, it wants to protect its investments in the country and that any growing economic instability or, and political repression could jeopardize that. There's also a growing ethnic Chinese population coming into the country. And obviously, Beijing doesn't want to endanger that Chinese population. And also, uh, the biggest uh, exporter of consumer goods into Burma is China. So China does want a stable Burma. So it's also in China's interest not to have you know, too much repression in the country. So I think the, uh, Beijing is having to carry out quite a sensitive balancing act. On the one hand, they don't want democracy yet. But on the other hand, they don't want too much repression either. And meanwhile, the picture you draw of Western involvement in Burma is one of, of ineffectiveness, really, in recent years. Yeah, and not just the West, but also the Asian countries, I mean, mm. uh, ASEAN as well. There seems, to be a, there seems to have been, to a large degree, quite a polarized approach. You had the West, which after 1988, as I mentioned earlier, just started hardening its tactics towards the regime and you had sanctions and embargoes, arms embargoes, trade embargoes and sanctions, which was very much a kind of the carrot and stick policy. The Asian countries have tried a policy of engagement. That hasn't worked, largely because, partly for two reasons, the junta sometimes, uh, one of the things, it's difficult to predict how they will react. There seems to be a certain irrationality. They have shown themselves quite willing to close off completely from the outside world since 1962, both economically and politically. But also because, largely because of the fact that if the West and the Asian nations impose restrictions in terms of uh, economics and politics, they know that they can go to places like China or India or Russia and curry favor with those countries. So I think there needs to be more of a unified approach by the uh, countries outside Burma with regards to dealing with the regime rather than a polarized approach, which obviously by Aung San Suu Kyi's trial and also by the fact that political repression within Myanmar is growing shows mm. that the current policy just isn't working. I mean, you mentioned that the, the repression is increasing in the run-up to scheduled elections, which are due to take place next year. Right. And I wondered if I could just ask you finally to sort of look ahead and, and tell me what your prognosis is for the next year for Burma. Do you think things are, are likely to get worse before they'll get better? I think, yeah, uh, I think Possibly they could get worse before they get better. Again, that's a slight uh, oversimplification. But, mm. I mean, the polls are due to be carried out next year, even though the final date hasn't been uh, made public yet. But I think the SPDC, the regime, to a degree, does want 
a certain amount of credibility for these elections, which have already been condemned and criticized by the West and the NLD as a sham, because mm. the election set aside 25% of seats to the military automatically. Mm. But I think if, if there is change, that something, it is something that will happen in the long term, but for it to happen, there needs to be a combination of things. The human rights movement within Myanmar has to continue, despite the, you know, the opposition that it does face. The international community, the EU, the US, the UK, ASEAN, but also China, India, Russia, the Asian countries, all have to be unified in the stance that they take when dealing with the SPDC. The Burmese opposition also has to be unified and possibly may have to be willing to negotiate with the regime. And also, importantly, political analysts have told me that there are more moderate elements within the regime, uh, younger members of the military, who may be willing to relent a, a little. But the main problem with that is that the currently shredded by Tan Shui is quite relentless, really. They showed how far they are willing to go in 2007 when, you know, Burmese monks, Buddhist monks, mm. who are venerated in, in Burmese society, they were shot at when they took the, to, to the streets to protest. So change is not going to be quick or easy? No, it's, it's definitely going to be something that will happen in the long term. I was talking to Rajashree Sasodia. You can read her article, May Sot's Unsung Heroes, in the July issue of Le Monde Diplomatique. You can also find that article, plus a huge archive of other material, online at mondediplo.com. And there are maps, blogs, and a podcast archive there too. I'll be back again next month with another in-depth interview with one of Le Monde Diplo's contributors. Until then, thank you for listening, and goodbye.